who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. You know what I just realized? What's that? Both of us do head tilts when we give our intro. You know, there's probably something psychological there that's like keeping us in time so that we can remember our stuff. Yeah. I also realize I never look at you when we do it. Oh, I don't either because I would immediately be thrown. I I have a hard enough time like knowing what I'm supposed to be doing in the first place. So I can't. How did we get here? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) My brain is functioning at like 15%. I'm in like the red. If my brain was like a phone battery. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I would be in the red. We're not even in low power mode. We're just straight up in the red. No, I wake up in the red with 18 tabs open (laughs) every day. That's, That's my constant state of existence, pretty much. Yeah. I, I truly think I might have a heart attack at a young age. I We were just talking about this in a mini episode. I'm like, I need to learn how to get my heart rate down because I think I'm nothing but a ball of anxiety from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed. Have you so. had your like blood pressure looked at or? Not recently. Speaking of, we were just talking about going to doctors. I don't think I've had a regular checkup in like ages. Yeah. The last time I did go, they did take my blood pressure and they were like, you are on the verge of hypertension. Like they were, <gasps> they were, they were like, yours is like, a, they're like, it's not an emergency. No, but, but like keep girl, an eye on it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I, I was just saying, I'm like, I need to like figure something out because I can't live my life with this much anxiety in it. All right. Well, as always, we are both a little bit tired, but I am very excited to talk about this topic today. Um, It's interesting because this story has been told, I would say, primarily from like a true crime perspective. Yes, it has been told from a true crime perspective. There are so many. um, For instance, I had watched and it's a very good documentary made by Kitty Genovese's brother. um, The Witness. Called The Witness. It's it's great if you've never seen it. Um, So I did watch that a long time ago and then I watched like half of it 
prepping for this episode. And I also did listen to a Crimes of the Centuries podcast episode because we like you said (laughs) and for a very good reason of course it's been covered from a true crime perspective because of what happened you know like well and it's also about the story that came out of it that truly wasn't even a real story it kind of became this like mythical legend where yeah in my eyes the victim who had such a fascinating life and story and whose death I think has a lot of weight to it. Her story was completely erased because of this bystander effect that that kind of took over the whole narrative of her story. And I remember watching The Witness for the first time and really enjoying, because her younger brother, Bill, I don't think was very aware or I know wasn't aware of his sister's life as a lesbian, as this, you know, woman, she's gotten arrested. She's right. a bit rough and tumble. Well, there was a huge age gap, yes. right? So like, you know, when her family moved away from New York, and we'll talk a little bit about her childhood. Yeah. Um, but when they moved away, he was only like seven. Yeah. And she was like 10 years older than She him. had graduated high school when they moved. And yeah, he was... 18 years old when she passed away. So he was just becoming an adult himself when all of this happened. So he was physically removed from his sister living in a different state than her, but also, you know, didn't know who his sister truly was, didn't know the true story of what had happened to her. And to me, seeing her younger brother not so much even learn the details of the murder, but learning the details of his sister's life was the biggest takeaway that I had. And I think that, you know, especially during Pride Month, even though technically this murder, the motive was not um, related to her being a lesbian per se. It was more about, it was more of a femicide and being a woman. Mm -hmm, But I think that it does carry a very important place in LGBTQ history and how her story has been erased in a lot of ways in place of another broader story that the broader public felt more comfortable digesting in the 1960s. Right. Well, yeah, her identity was very much erased. And even though this definitely, in my view, wasn't a crime that was based upon her sexuality or um, her sexual orientation, there was this idea in the 50s and 60s, and there was even a string of crimes, I think were called like the career girl murders um, that took place, I think maybe in Chicago, don't quote me on any of that. Um, but it was, and it was it was called that because there was this real fear about young women kind of going out on their own, living yeah. together without a man, um, right? Regardless of sexual orientation, it was just this thing that there was like all these young women who were now who were out careers, in the career force, and- right? And living without men at home uh, and that there was this real danger. There was this narrative that there's this real danger about being a single woman in the city and like, this is why you shouldn't do it and this is why women need the protection of men. Well, and it know? sucks because not that the protection of men would have done her any good in this situation, but it does suck because she was spotted leaving work and followed. Like, it's so true like women are so a woman alone but that's something that's never changed and it happened well before then and it happened after then yes but this this crime you know in addition to all the other conversations that it created it did kind of solidify that idea in people's minds that like 
women aren't, you know, this is an independent woman, right? Who like was a working woman and, and we came shouldn't home do late the at same by herself. And, you know, that's dangerous. You know, See, this is why you shouldn't go out in the world, little Sally. You know, right. this is and why you should get married before you go live on your own. And you then know? it became this horror story urban legend because then it became this thing that was like, and also, even if you live around people, they're not going to protect yeah, you. Yeah, 37 or 38 people 38, can yeah. watch you mm-hmm. get murdered and no one's going to care. And that's what's truly horrifying by yeah. this, you know. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more, I'm sure. But that story was so sensationalized because. Yes, it's true that those people probably could have done more. And yes, there were studies that were done that were spurred on by this incident. That, that did, were very good. Like right. and a good Samaritan law. I mean, we'll talk about all of this. Like and a lot the, of really good things came out of it. And the studies really did prove that, yes, the more people you think that are around, like it did prove the bystander effect to yeah. a certain degree that like, if it's just you, you know, there was a study that was conducted after this that was motivated by this incident um, where it was two scientists and they conducted a study where they had people on the phone with someone who was having, uh, pretending to have a seizure or a cardiac event and asking for help. Oh. And it was like a classroom setting, right? On, but on the phone. And the more people who were in the call or on the call, the longer it took any one of them to respond. Yeah, because everybody thinks that someone else is going to be the one going to, to do step it. forward. Or, or if they're not, then I think that there's this self-conscious aspect of maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe yeah. nothing really needs to be done. Um, but if it's just you on the phone with that person, you will respond much more quickly. Yeah. Right? And so that stuff is true. And there is an element of, like, could these people have done more or responded differently? Yes. However... It's not the case that we all heard growing up that like, can you believe these heartless New Yorkers who just didn't do anything to save this poor woman? You know, Um, it's a very interesting case. And her life is I think that she just seems like she was the coolest person. Right. Like she I want to be Kitty's friend when I'm reading about her. I'm just like, oh, my gosh, like I bet you she was so much fun and even her little brother I think it really speaks to who she is where you know she moved or they moved away from each other when he was like seven and he still said you know I'm I'm someone who has siblings who are 10 years younger than me yeah and to have that kind of relationship that he describes where she would like stay up late talking to him yeah they were they were like the closest of the siblings because she was one of five and they really talk about how Bill and Kitty had like a special connection. Which is amazing for an age difference like that. And it takes a special older sibling to take that kind of interest as a teenager. Definitely. In like a, a much, much younger sibling, yeah. you know. Well, let's start from the beginning and we're yeah. going to fill in all the blanks to everything we've just talked about. So her birth name is Catherine Susan Genovese. She was born on July 7th, 1935. Cancer? Cancer. It was go. two days before my birthday. You know, yeah. she's a cancer. Yeah. Also, she was born exactly... Five years before Ringo Starr was born. He was born on July 7th, 1940. Oh, wow. I Same had to Google energy, it. I feel like. They got Very good. much so. Peace yeah. and love. Peace and love. Peace and love, but like a little bit of a mischievous streak there. But I'll beat your ass if I need to. <laughs> Although it'd be funny to see Ringo try to beat someone up. So like we were discussing, Kitty had siblings and she was the oldest of five kids to Catholic parents in an Italian-American home in Brooklyn. It's, I can imagine it. 
it's that loud, typical, it's boisterous. It's that, Brooklyn. It's that typical Italian American Brooklyn family that I feel like we've seen in so many HBO shows. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm picturing the chaos and yeah, the madness. Yeah, people are running downstairs, grabbing a piece of toast and running out the door kind yep. of situation. That's the vibe. You know, and she's gorgeous. Oh my God. Well, okay. I was going to save this for later, but you know the picture, like if you say Katie Genovese, uh-huh. most people are going to imagine this one image, right? Mm-hmm. It's her fucking mugshot. I know. And she looks amazing she's banging i I mean she's got this tousled little bob she's so adorable she is uh, well we're gonna get into it so she uh grew up in a upper middle class home and had a very comfortable upbringing with her family she attended prospect heights high where she was remembered as a quote cut up which i love yeah she was voted class crack up which is like she was just the class clown she would do like impersonations of teachers Mm -hmm. but the teachers couldn't really get mad at her because she was so lovely Mm -hmm. they said she had a sunny disposition she's very popular and fun with everybody very much so uh so in a very strange omen around the time that she was graduating from high school her mother rachel had witnessed a murder in brooklyn which really scared her of course she has these five kids to care for so Kitty's parents decided to relocate to New Canaan, Connecticut. Now, do you know about New Canaan? Um, I don't know about New Canaan specifically. So I know about it from another murder. <laughs> um, it is one of the wealthiest cities in America. Yeah, that's what I know about New Canaan. Is it that is, it's, it's one of those very waspy connecticut places. It is so much money and it has been one of the wealthiest cities in America for like hundreds of years. Like it has a lot of that like almost kind of generational wealth feel to it. When you think of the high class Connecticut, you're thinking of New Canaan. It's very, very wealthy. I'm sure that with that, they thought there'd be a lot of safety and things like that. But yeah, I mean, they cited the rising crime um, and the, you know, fear of danger as one of the reasons why they left New York, why yeah. they left Brooklyn. But Kitty loved New York. Kitty loved New York. Well, and this is great. They don't go into any detail. And I literally couldn't find any information on this. I don't know if they covered it in the documentary because I wasn't able to rewatch it. But she was actually engaged to be married when she graduated high school to a man who was a military cadet. She married him. And she married him. Yeah. yeah so she stayed. What I was wondering is, okay, was she staying because she knew she was getting married? In the things that I read, they say that she stayed just because she was actually so independent. She was this like very fiercely independent person. And she just, that was her hometown and she loved it there. And she wanted, I think that there was this idea, we're talking about the early 60s now. So, you know, the late 50s. Are, are happening people are women are starting to kind of go into the workforce and I think that that's what she wanted for herself and New York would be a hub for that too mm-hmm. as a big city where in Connecticut that may not be yeah because she wanted to work she yeah. tried a few different things you know and although she did marry um that man she initially was staying with her grandparents right so she was like I think I want to stay with my grandparents and try my hand at working and she tried a few different things she tried being a waitress you know she tried some clerical work some secretarial work uh and was just like none of this is really for me yeah uh and she did end up marrying that man whose name i don't even know i know i couldn't find a damn thing about it but it was annulled within the same year it was annulled in a few months she literally graduated high school got married and got annulled within a year yeah within a year no thank you well and there was some other sources that were discussing that maybe Kitty, even though she did plan on getting married, it was not uncommon for gay people to marry 
the opposite gender and no. still, you know, yeah, want to live course. their lives in a certain way. And being from New York, I mean, there is unbelievable gay history in New York. I'm sure that she could have already suspected who she is and seen people in the area that could facilitate that lifestyle for her. This is mostly where a joke she would feel more safe and a broad generalization. But she did go to an all girls private school. I would as imagine. soon as I read that, I was like, I'm sure she knew her sexuality she, pretty early. She might have had an inkling, you know, pretty early on. But, you know, also she moved into the city. Well, she was already in Brooklyn, but she moved into Queens and then became very like popular. Super pop. I mean, she was like, it sounds like she was kind of a smooth woman. Like she was a smooth talker. I have a feeling, you know, we know that she goes on to meet Marianne, but I have a feeling she had quite a few lady friends in her time. Yeah. She was very popular in Greenwich village because Greenwich village was kind of the rising gay scene. There were lots of gay bars and lesbian bars. Most of them run by the mob, um, which we have talked about before, because at this time in New York, uh, homosexuality was still criminalized. Yeah. So she would frequent these bars. And from what I've heard, you know, she was very outgoing and kind of boisterous and talked to everybody and very popular. But she tried her hat at all these different jobs None of them really stuck until she discovered bartending and she really enjoyed it probably because she is such a social butterfly exactly. kind of person. You know, I was reading, you know, all the traits that did her so well in school really helped her as a bartender because she was so personable with her customers. In fact, she was so personable with her customers that at her first job she got arrested mm-hmm. because she was stealing money from patrons for horse race betting. <laughs> yeah, well, it was illegal betting. Yeah, and she was she was ambitious as well. So she worked her way up and actually became a manager right. at Ebbs, where she ended up working. Uh, and of course, in both of these jobs at both of these bars that she had worked at, one as a bartender, the other as eventually a manager, um, they were very male dominated. But the men that she worked with said that she was like one of the guys. Of like course, that's kind yeah. of how they put it. You know, she but was. But I think it's easy. also like, and oh, like that's such a problematic thing to even it, say. It She's is, one of the guys because she was easy. It's what but they I think, said. Totally. But yeah. I think that what they mean by that, because I think that like the thing that we look at with men is their confidence Mm -hmm. and their self-assurance when they step into a room, especially a bar filled with men. If you're able to stand in and hold your own, that's what I think they mean by that. Like Kitty, Kitty could pull her weight along with any of any of us guys. You know what I mean? I mean, and it's kind of hard to determine everything because what we have is a lot of their accounts of it's, their relationship with her. And it's all recollections right. after the fact, right. too. exactly. But I think there was also this thing where they saw her, so maybe not, maybe one of the guys isn't the right way to, to put it. Maybe it's more like a kid sister kind of situation. Yeah. Or a, or a sister situation just in general where it's not really sexual. It's kind of just like she's one of us. Like she yeah. works here alongside us. And totally. like we don't think of her... We didn't think of her like that. Totally. That's kind of the vibe I got from the the things that I was reading. Definitely. About her relationship with her coworkers. Well, and you were mentioning just how ambitious she was. She was working so hard as a bartender and manager because she really wanted to open her own Italian restaurant someday, which I think is so sweet. As a sweet little Italian-American girl, she's like, I'm going to open a restaurant. (laughs) Yeah. So like we had already said, she 
was known to frequent bars um, in Greenwich Village where she could associate with other women. Yeah. And at one of these bars, she met a fellow bartender named Mary Ann Zilanko. And the two quickly hit it off. Like, it to was, hear Mary Ann tell it. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very cute. So she, uh, Kitty kind of went up to Mary Ann and gave her like a smooth line or whatever. And they hit it off a little bit and they were chatting and then they both went their separate ways. But when Mary Ann had, I don't know if it was the same day. I don't know how the timing would work. But at some point, Marianne saw a note on her door from Kitty saying, hold on, where's the quote? We'll call you at street corner phone booth at seven. Kitty G. <laughs> Which I think is yeah. so, because they didn't have cell phones. Right. She didn't know her numbers. So she's like, hey, I'm going to call phone. this phone booth. If you want to answer, you can. If you don't, I get the message. But I think that's such like a... Such a cool 60s way of like getting a date. And it's quite forward, you know, to to say like, you made an impression on me. I'm going to call you. You know, and something I found interesting about Marianne is that she had run away from home at 15. So she had had kind of a difficult childhood um, or upbringing, maybe not even a difficult upbringing, but she came out to her parents at 15. Yeah. At that point left the home. And I can imagine it was probably not a good family situation at that point. Well, no, and then also just the history of gay kids being kind of thrown out into the world and what they've had to do to survive. Right. And to make it, you know, yeah. it's not it to this day is not easy, but especially in the 50s and 60s was definitely yeah. not easy, but that's why so many of these people gravitated toward these, you know, San mm-hmm. Francisco and Greenwich Village. You yeah. know, we're like the yeah. two places where these people were like if I can just make it there, even if I have to really struggle, maybe I'll find a community. Yeah, and one detail that I liked um or that I found interesting about Marianne is that she came out after reading Patricia Highsmith's novel The Price of Salt, uh which is also known as Carol, the movie yeah. Carol. Uh and Patricia Highsmith, if you haven't read any of her novels, I've read two of her novels this year. She wrote like Strangers on a Train, The Talented Mr. Yeah. Ripley, um, Deep Water, which is now a movie yeah. on Hulu. I had no idea that she wrote all those. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And there's always kind of like, maybe not Carol, because I actually haven't seen Carol, but the others have a very similar kind of vibe where she writes a lot from the perspective of the criminal. Okay. Generally the murder. <laughs> murder, yeah. you know. Um, but I found that really interesting because Patricia Highsmith I was reading about after I had read some of her novels right not realizing that she's kind of this LGBTQ icon which is um, why I think the price of salt was such a prominent mm-hmm. work for her yeah and she wrote it under a pseudonym because it was that kind of like controversial like right. writing about the these relationships with women and so to know that Mary Ann read that and it spoke to her so much that it encouraged her to to come actually out. come out. I right. mean, I think that is unbelievably brave. And I don't I was going to say stupid, but I don't mean stupid. Like, why would you do that? But it's like, what a crazy thing to think of doing it's, in it's the so 1950s to it's, just be like, hey, mom and dad, I'm 15 and I'm gay as hell. It's not like, anything that I don't I don't think I would have been able to do that. It took me 29 know? goddamn years mm-hmm. to say the word bisexual out loud and referring yeah. to myself. I can't imagine being a 15 year old in a society and in a world where lesbianism doesn't exist. Right. And yeah. suddenly just being like, no, that's me and saying it out loud. And knowing your parents are not going to react well because I'm yeah. sure that she knew that. You know, but I also, I liked that little tidbit because 
I think it really speaks to the ways that like media and art can have this profound impact on our lives, right? Because like she read this novel and this novel told her there are other people who have the same feelings that you're having. Yes, and before the internet, it was books that Mm -hmm. you would read to discover other ways of living life. You know, and it sounds like both she and Kitty were both very well read and really enjoyed reading. I wrote this in my notes. I'm not meaning to offend anybody, but it is a stereotype. In true lesbian fashion, they moved in together very, very, very quickly they They were like i like you you like me we're moving in together which honestly you haul packed they did immediately (laughs) so they moved into kew gardens in queens together and got a cute little apartment and i was reading that their bookshelves were stacked with with true crime novels here for it (laughs) lesbian pulp novels here for it and kitty had a copy of the feminine mystique Mm -hmm. and marianne was like well you know like Betty Betty Friedan, she sees us as the lavender menace. She hates lesbians. And Kitty, I guess, in response, just kind of like shrugged. Which Yeah, laughed it off kind of. Yeah, which I think is interesting because, you know, Marianne, to me, it seems like she was very secure in telling anybody and anyone that she was... I mean, maybe not anyone, but she was a little bit more secure and maybe a little bit more educated in some of this stuff. But I also think, you know, the feminine mystique, as problematic as it is especially when it comes to how she discusses the lesbian community I think that it probably also spoke to Kitty in a lot of ways because it was it was speaking to who she is as a as a woman who wants to take charge of her life and do more than just be a mother and Absolutely. a wife. You There's know? a reason why the feminine mystique spoke to a lot of people. You yeah. know? And I think that it makes a lot of sense given what we know about Kitty um, and her desire to like have these ambitions outside of the home where like she was making good money. She was working double. She was making uh, really yeah, good money. She, her dad would always tell her that she needed to get married and she was like, why would for I do what? that when I make more than any man would? Yeah, so, I can support myself. And I do think that you know, for all of its faults, which we have talked about many times and in depth, um, the feminine mystique did light a fire in a lot of women, especially middle upper class women, which Kitty was like, you know, and she was from this family that I think had all of these like very Italian American values, Catholic Catholic values. Um, And I do think that while both women, they didn't hold hands in public, they kept their relationship a secret. Well, would they be arrested? It would be... Right. They were, quote unquote, roommates. Yeah. All of their neighbors thought that they were roommates. Um, So even though they did all of those things for obvious reasons, I do think that although Marianne was the more soft spoken in the couple and Kitty was far more outgoing and outspoken in a lot of ways, Marianne is the one who came out to her parents at 15. She's more worldly and she's been on her own since 15 and right. had to do all these things and where Kitty... Kitty's family didn't even know, yeah. you know, about her sexuality. I think she kept a lot of those things under wraps because of the family that she came from. Yeah, and right? didn't want to rock any boats or anything like right. that and wanted to keep her family close to her. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. Yes. So on March 13th, which is Friday the 13th, 1964, Marianne was asleep in bed after having gone out bowling with friends. And it wasn't unusual for Marianne to go to bed without Kitty. Kitty often worked late. And again, she was like very independent. Yeah. So there was... I'm the same. Marianne, I want to be in bed by 1030 every night. I hear you. I'm not waiting up till 3 a.m. to go to bed with Right. Yeah. I mean, and on this night, on this night, um, Kitty wasn't working late. She worked until I think like 10 or something like that. And then she went out for a drink with a friend of hers, a male friend. And then they went back to her bar that she managed. Yeah. And um, hung out there until the early hours until about 2 a.m. And then she left that bar. But Kitty was really cautious. So though there was a back entrance to her apartment that she could take a shortcut to, she always walked around to the front. So it was longer to walk around to the front, um, but it was well lit and was facing the street. So she did, again, you know, not that there's anything, there's no such thing as a perfect victim. But when people tell you, like, these are all the things you should look out for. These are all the things you should do to avoid getting She was doing the right thing. She was doing those things. So she parked in her parking spot and then, you know, went to walk around the front. Marianne was awoken in the early hours of the morning by a knock at her door and it was police who escorted her to the morgue where she would identify the body of her partner, Kitty Genoese. She was in such a state of shock. This was a fact that really, like, hurt my heart. Yeah. She identified the body um, and then she refused to leave the morgue. They tried to get her to leave the morgue and she wouldn't go. And when they asked why, she told the detectives, I'm waiting for Kitty. She's coming with us. (sighs) Because she was just, she couldn't comprehend. She couldn't comprehend that she was actually gone. Right. Oh, yeah. I'm like feeling my eyes tear up just hearing that. Uh, And Marianne immediately became 
a suspect just yeah. as you know because it, it did come out pretty quickly that she was in a romantic relationship with Kitty when she was being investigated by the police she was interrogated for like six hours, six hours. by them mm-hmm. and treated just absolutely horribly and I was doing some research because clearly we know that the husband or the spouse is typically the first person that anyone will look at in a violent crime right but I was reading that typically same-sex couples mm-hmm. will experience a greater degree of suspicion, right. of um, interrogation, of cruel treatment, a higher arrest rate for you know these crimes rather than letting them go and arresting them you know later, convicting right. them later. Well, because you think of these people thought of their quote-unquote lifestyle as a moral failing exactly right? and so when they see people as amoral it's the same way of, our, it's one step over to murder right yeah it's just like oh well they were already engaging in these things that i deem to be immoral so it makes sense that they would also have these other quote-unquote perversions right yeah and then also they believed um i read in a lot of cases specifically with uh, same-sex couples that they murdered for jealousy at a higher yes. rate. Which to me, it's just like with all the evidence we have of, you know, look, of course, love is a motive. Yeah. Right? And like, quote unquote, passion. Crime of passion, is whatever. A yeah. motive always. But like we have tons of examples of heterosexual relationships ending in murder. We probably from jealousy. have more because there's like more documented heterosexual crime probably mm-hmm. than... You know what I mean? It's absolutely ridiculous. And and Mary Ann was treated as a prime suspect. I mean, they caught the guy that did it like five days later. And from my understanding, they probably considered Mary Ann as a suspect for oh, definitely. probably that whole yeah. time. And the questioning was very much focused on her sexual yes. history and, and it was, their relationship. And it was a very, you know, like we talked about Mary Ann, she wasn't hiding her sexuality necessarily but like we said she wasn't holding hands with kitty walking down the street they were very private she wasn't out to the whole world well you wouldn't be talking to police about this anyway you know no. there was a lot of distrust in general right of the police at this time for but good she reason. had no she had no choice but to out herself and in that she kind of outed herself to the world in that way because it got out and in turn the gay community her friends even had a hard time being around her because they would be outed by association yeah and she just lived this very lonely existence because of her being very like violently and publicly outed through this case yeah so let's talk a little bit about what happened to kitty yes so I'm going to give a really big trigger warning because this is a incredibly brutal crime and there is mention of sexual violence. So if this is going to be a difficult section for you, feel free to stop the episode now or skip ahead a bunch. Uh, But there is going to be some sensitive topics being discussed. So like we said, it was around like two in the morning when she left the bar she was walking to her car when a man named Winston Mosley, that bitch. Oh, he's a terrible person. A Just terrible. everything I read. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's genuinely very, very scary because when asked later why he'd done it, 
he just said that he wanted to kill somebody. He like, want, it, no, he said he wanted, wanted to, to kill, kill a, a woman. woman. Yes. Any woman. Any woman. So yeah. he was on the hunt that night. He was a family man. He had children. He had a wife. He waited for his wife to go to bed. He went out and he was literally out to hunt. Had a hunting knife. Yes. Like, that was his weapon. Yes. So he was driving around the city looking for a woman. And he spotted Kitty leaving the bar and walking alone to her car and decided that he was going to follow her home. So he drove behind her, following her to her apartment. And by the time Kitty kind of reached the front door, he startled her behind her, which made her begin to run away, which led to him beginning to stab her. Yeah, like like I said, so she parked in the back and then you walked around the building. So she parked in the back and she's walking kind of like around that first curve. And that's when she noticed that he was behind her, right? Yeah. So it's she's not even out on the street that's facing, you know, the other buildings yet. And it's not well lit yet. So she's mm. scared, yeah, of course. And so she starts running and he starts chasing her. So yeah. it's about when um, she's turning around the second corner, which uh, leads to the like front facing street where right. she's, you know, that he actually stabs her. And that's yeah. when she calls out and she says, oh my God, he stabbed me. Help me. Yeah. Loud enough to wake up several of her neighbors across the street. So yeah. they hear her um, and there are, are, you know, there's testimony of several of her neighbors going to the window and seeing, you know, her and a man and one of her neighbors actually yells out to leave that girl alone. Yeah. And at that point, you know, he gets startled. Mm-hmm. He he realizes that someone is seen, so he runs away. He gets back to his car and no one comes down to see how Kitty is or anything. She is lying on the ground having been stabbed 13 times and she begins to crawl her way to the stairwell to try to make it to her apartment alive and by the time Mosley realized that there were no cops coming. There was no one there to help her. No no one was around. He left his car. He met her at the bottom of the stairwell where he brutally raped this poor woman who was barely even alive. Yeah, I mean, he stabbed her several more times before raping her, which is truly horrifying. I mean, and this is the part of the story that for me... And I think that they say this in The Witness, too, that like this is the part that is like really hard for me because once he ran away, like so, you know, someone's seen someone's yelled out, even if they think that like it was just a domestic dispute or something, which a lot of the neighbors said that. Which is like, like, can you still check on the domestic disputes, please? I get they might happen a lot, but like, can we still have someone? Yeah, unfortunately, in the 1960s, it was kind of seen like a not my business sort of situation. Yeah, not my circus, not my monkeys. Right. So, you know, she she thought she was safe at that point, which is why she allowed herself at that point to lie down weren't fatal. So she found she like got herself kind of cocooned in a stairwell and allowed herself to take a moment to like Mm. stop and breathe. Oh, that hurts. Right. She thought she was safe. That's the thing that is so scary because then he, when he realized nothing was going to happen, he changed his hat and then he was looking for her in like several, he opened several doors before he found her, which that's like a horror movie. And she started screaming again and it's at this point that there was actually a neighbor at the top of the stairwell this is one person who you can point to yeah and this is one person who 
they did point to a lot and was used a lot in examples of the bystander effect because he opened his door, saw them at the bottom yeah. of the stairwell and closed his door and shut it. And when asked later, he said, I didn't want to get involved. Yeah. I just didn't want to get involved. So that's the thing that people point to. Definitely. But luckily there was one woman who was like hidden for 40 years before Bill discovered this. There was a woman named Sophia Farrer and she either witnessed part of it, but she definitely heard what was going on and took it upon herself that once the scene ended, she went to Kitty and she began yeah. to, she got down on the ground and comforted her while she began screaming for somebody to get a hold this of the This was her police. friend. I mean, yes. this was somebody who, like, she knew she had over for coffee all the time. Yeah. Um, and her son is in The Witness, and she didn't want to be interviewed for good reason. Yeah. You know, because she'd been interviewed later on, and then it was reported, you know, they didn't report that she was there with her. Everyone reported that Kitty died alone, which and she And she probably felt really bad because they were reporting this very misleading story and it probably made her feel like what she did didn't matter well she said it she told her son she said you know there's no point in in talking to to them it's not going to do any good they're just going to lie about this because they reported that she also said she didn't want to get involved and she did get involved i mean she ran out without her husband like her husband was right like behind her she had a son and husband and she Mm -hmm. ran outside and she held her and, and comforted she described her. feeling her wounds on her back because yeah. she was holding her. Yeah. You know? She was cradling her. And it's so, uh, it, and it made her brother and it makes me feel a little bit better in this horrible story to know that her last breaths were not alone in that stairwell or were not looking at the man who brutalized her. It was in the arms of someone she truly felt safe with and cared about. And Sophia you know, was screaming for people to finally call the police. And this is when I want to interject that there was no 911 at this time. And that's a very important thing to remember. So you would call the operator and then the operator would connect you to your most local precinct. You would then tell them what's going on and they would decide if that warranted a police response or not. That's Mm -hmm. how our emergency system happened. So even if you were to get a hold of the police, it didn't even necessarily mean that they were on their way to help you. Well, there was someone who did, who testified that he did call the police. His son swears that he called the police. Yep. Um, And he told the police, there's a woman stumbling around outside. You know, I think someone should come check this out. And no one came. And then when the police came the next day after, you know, what happened happened, he asked them, why didn't you come out? And according to his son, the police just kind of said, we don't need to speak with you anymore. Yeah. And, And walked away. So this whole narrative, because, you know, initially... There wasn't, this didn't make like huge headlines. No. Then two weeks later, the New York Times released an article because there was a contact at the Times who had a friend in the police department and that person said, you'll never believe this. 38 neighbors saw and heard their neighbor being brutally murdered for half an hour because that's how long these three kind of like separate um, attacks attacks on Kitty took place. Um and they said, can you can you believe that, that these people all heard this woman being murdered and didn't do anything? So the New York Times ran a piece and they barely even talked about the actual Person. killer. Well, the you killer know, or, or Kitty. Yeah, they well, didn't talk this is, really about either of them. They talked about, can you believe these neighbors was basically the tone of the article. They exactly. blamed the neighbors. And yes, again, 
are there people in this situation who could have done more? Specifically that one neighbor, if he had done something, maybe, maybe it it could have saved Kitty's life. So sure, like there are things that you can say. But But that's not their responsibility. Their responsibility is on the killer and the killer alone. And I was reading that, you know, if most, you know, young, pretty white women when they're murdered, even back then would usually get, you know, quite a lot of attention in the media with stories written about them and who they were or, you know, what they did for a living and all these things. And for Kitty, they literally just stated her name, her home address, and her place of employment. And that was the only details they shared right. about Kitty in the story. they demoted her to a barmaid. Yep. That, that's how they, you know, they said that she was a barmaid, which isn't really true. Like, she, she was managed manager. that bar, yeah. right? Which is might seem like a small distinction to some people, but is actually a pretty big deal. It right? is. And she so, was running things. She wasn't just making the drinks. Right. Let's get this straight. Yeah. I, you know, and so it's just, it's, it's really sad. It's really sad for a number of reasons, right? Because this thing followed all of these neighbors as well. Like yeah. To the point where every 10 years there was coverage of this case. 10 years since Kitty Genovese, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, Right. And they would be trying to contact these neighbors every single year to talk to them about why didn't you do anything? And the truth is, some of them did do things. A lot of them couldn't understand what she was screaming. They lived above a bar. So it wasn't unusual for there to be noise. it sucks that even when we know who the killer is, that every 10 years we would be hunting down these neighbors to get more information. I get that people are pissed. I would be pissed off too if that's what I believe truly happened. And if it was my I would want an ex- I would want an explanation Certainly. too, and I understand that, but I don't understand why so much of the onus has been put on the bystanders when it was this man's hatred of women that Truly. killed Kitty. Yeah. And I think that while it's important to discuss the bystander effect, of course, because it's true... I I hate that the narrative was shifted so much away from Mm -hmm. the humanity that it it totally took away. It it created this fantastical narrative and like almost mythical story without it having any real basis in reality and the facts of the case. Yeah, I mean, not entirely. I mean, of course, a, a little bit. Sure, like a little bit, but not the way that they not the way that they made it out to be at all. And yeah. Yeah, like you said, it really just distracted from the true nature of this crime and yeah. who Kitty was um, and what really happened. And that's, yeah. it, that's extremely upsetting. And also there's so many other things at play. Like there were a lot of Holocaust survivors that lived in this neighborhood. Yes. And a lot of old, older people, elderly people, people who had really good reason not to trust authority. Yes. Um, and that's another reason why a lot of them felt uncomfortable calling the police. I understand that 100%. And that's why it's it's like, don't blame the wrong person here, you know? Yeah, it's tragic. Of course it's tragic. And I would like to think that I would do something in this situation. But who knows when, when you're in an apartment building and this stuff is happening, are you going to put yourself in danger? You know, that those are the things that I think about, about how would I actually react? I hope that I would do the right thing. But I mean, Mm -hmm. physically intervening, things like that, like you're thinking about your own safety as well. It can be a very scary situation. So I'm not necessarily I mean, I am upset that they didn't do more. But at the same time, I understand the fear involved with getting involved in a violent crime. And do you think that these people don't like or didn't 
think about that every day for the rest of their lives. You know, like totally because you'd have to be heartless not to. If you found out that you had just ignored something like that, I can't imagine a human being with a beating heart in their body that wouldn't be hurt by that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So 40 years later, the New York Times did publish a second article questioning the facts or the accuracy of the first article. And now you can still find that first article on New York Times in their archives. And they have an editor's note at the top that says that it's not um, that the the facts of that article have been called into question because it's it's just sensationalized. But they it is a historical things. article now. So oh, I'm glad that they still have it available yeah. to read. But it is important that they make a disclaimer at the top. Um, before we go move on too much, I also wanted to discuss a little bit more of Marianne's position during all of this. Yeah. Because, you know, I talked about how she really lost her community when she was outed and all of this was going on. She was asked to be a witness for the prosecution. And the prosecution was aware of Marianne. Marianne and Katie's relationship and aware of their sexuality, but were afraid of bringing up the true nature of their relationship in the trial as they were afraid that the jury would be swayed negatively toward Kitty and possibly, right, and would possibly even give Mosley a lighter sentence, which is just so disheartening. So, you know, they had Marianne up there on the stand having to pretend that they were just friends during this whole thing. And the other thing that is so disheartening, you know, we talked about Katie's family and their lack of awareness of what happened where, or not of what happened, sorry, uh, but of their daughter's lifestyle and sexuality. Just her life in general. Of her life. But, you know, Marianne discusses how before Katie's death, she visited her family's house in New Canaan multiple times and went on trips. And she believes that her parents knew what their relationship was, but never wanted to mention it. Like they just kind of pretended it didn't exist and would kind of just like hang out and pretend that they weren't lesbians. But then once this trial happened and Marianne was outed, the family immediately distanced themselves from Marianne and didn't want right. well, to be I mean, seen with her. I can't really blame them too much because Bill talks a lot about the fact that I don't know how much of it was because of her being outed and her sexuality and how much of it was because they couldn't talk about kitty like yeah. bill said that they did they didn't talk about her i know because it was too painful for them they yeah. distanced themselves i think from everything that reminded them of kitty and i'm not saying that no there but wasn't i think that was marianne's homophobe. perspective though where sure. she was like you knew me and you brought me into your home and now you're pretending that i don't exist when i'm standing in this trial right Depend- you know what I- uh-huh. there's I'm not saying at all that it wasn't rooted in homophobia. I'm also just allowing for the possibility that one. I'm sure it could be many things too, because that would be hard to have this like reminder of. I mean, especially if you knew that this was the woman that your daughter loved, that could even make it harder knowing that this isn't just any friend. This is somebody that loved my daughter the same way that I did. And everybody deals with things like this so differently. And some people want to hold on to everything and, physically touch everything and hold everything and talk about the person and like uh, you know a fellowship with other people to remember the person and some people don't want to talk at all or be reminded at all yeah you know just which can't. is not healthy <laughs> you know what I mean? we're talking about the 1960s you know so it's we weren't talking openly about grief grief and is really complicated yeah though. it's just so com- and grief rooted in trauma 
grief rooted in trauma and then also everybody in the country because this was nationwide news talking right about it everybody's talking about your daughter and talking about her having to hear i don't know that i'd want to talk about it because like having to hear that like your daughter your sister your relative was it's completely 30, brutalized 30 minutes yeah, 30 minutes and to hear have this narrative being pushed that like all these people knew all these people heard and uh, they didn't do anything. I know, you know, it would be really, really, really hard. To I'd deal be with. screaming. I'd be like, why don't you give a shit about my daughter? Like yeah, I would be would, as a parent, I would be absolutely livid if I believed that the narrative that was put out there was 100 percent factual. And I, think I would be believe it oh, because yeah. why wouldn't you? The New yeah. York Times, who's supposed to be fact checking and all this other stuff published an article about it. So of course you're going to believe it and be hurt and angry by that. And Anybody they didn't would. go to the trial because if they had gone to the trial, they would have heard that, you know, someone did yell outside the window. They would have heard that she didn't die alone. They would have heard all of those things. But her brother Bill said that they couldn't bring themselves to go to the trial. I don't blame like, them Like they either. were so, they just couldn't, they needed to detach. Yeah. You know, and definitely. yeah, we can question whether or not that's healthy, but. But at the time, that's what they had to, to do to survive. But um, Winston Mosley was initially sentenced to death, but that was eventually changed to 20 years to life. But he got to die of natural causes in prison. That yeah, son of a I bitch. Mean, and it should also be said that he. Um, he admitted to two other murders, two other rapes and murders mm-hmm. when he was and confessing to pretty, Kitties. pretty brutal, brutal crimes. And then the reason why his sentence got changed from the death sentence to life imprisonment was because they had argued an insanity defense. Yeah. And there was an appeal where they said that you should have, they didn't even, everyone was so angry about this murder for good reason, but right. they didn't even allow any of his mental health stuff in. So the court oh. of appeals said, well, you should have at least allowed, allowed that it in, in as a possibility. And so they converted it. However, he managed to injure himself like a year after his imprisonment. Mm-hmm. And while he was being transferred to a hospital to take care of his injuries, he punched one of his corrections officers, managed to escape. And then while he was on the lam raped another woman. Yep. So he's a real piece of shit. He's a real piece of shit. He was also part of, um, was it the Attica riots? I can't remember what was it was. He? he was part of one of the big prison riots. I didn't, I didn't want to give this man more time than I needed. I would rather focus on Kitty. So I didn't really like take any notes on it or anything, but I remember his Wikipedia page mentioning this whole section about him being a part of some major prison well, riot and you know what the, I mean like the Attica riot was a valid riot then um, maybe that's not the one it's it, just the it, one that I think of when I think of prison riots the so Attica uprising was me. was valid because there was right. some real fucking human rights shit happening at that right. prison I don't remember um, which but he was a part of some big prison riot but yeah one of the big reasons why his sentence was extended was because not only did he escape but he also brutalized more people when he was off well, and on his gallivanting he, adventure there was just something really messed up with this man because one of his arguments for why he should be let out <laughs> during one of his like probation hearings was that he believed that his crime actually bettered the world because what he did brought attention to the fact that people needed to help people who were who were in 
need. So he should be thanked. So yeah, everybody should be thanking him because it brought attention Mental to the Mental gymnastics at its finest, just, am I right? You thinking you could go before like a parole board with that argument and yeah. they'd be like, good point, Winston. Like, <laughs> wow, just truly... We didn't think of it that way. You're right. You did a good thing. I was reading an article on glad.org talking about the Katie Genovese case. And it was one of the only articles that I found where it discussed her sexuality in terms of how we've reacted to this case. Mm -hmm. And they have a quote saying, it doesn't appear that she was attacked for being a lesbian, but the community's response and history's erasure of her LGBT identity Mm -hmm. speak to the problematic ways in which society can easily dismiss marginalized peoples, even in their hour of greatest need. Yeah. Yeah. The article that you sent me, which I did read in preparation for this episode, and I will link in the show notes, uh, obviously <laughs> is they they made a really good point about how this story became kind of this story about not turning your face away or closing your eyes to what's happening right in front of you and ironically we did that about her whole life yeah we didn't accept her for the truth of all of who she was. Um, We only wanted these things that fit our narrative that were very convenient and we wanted to ignore everything else. Right. Um, And I think that that's something that is probably still so prevalent in so many crimes from Katie Genovese to now because crimes against marginalized people are not reported as much or the same as crimes against white people would be. So even though she was a white woman, crimes involving LGBTQ communities, any marginalized communities are not going to have the same kind of respect and coverage of, you know, a white cisgendered person, you know? And I Mm -hmm. think that it's, it shows me that we, we've changed in many ways where of course we're much more open with discussing sexuality as a whole in our culture. But I still think that there is an uncomfortable, we feel uncomfortable with bringing it up, especially when we talk about violent crimes and things like that, because I feel like it does create still a negative stigma in people's minds when a victim lives a certain lifestyle. Uh, if the victim yeah, had a certain absolutely. drug in their system, mm-hmm. if, this, if the victim walk, was walking home alone, if they were gay, these are all reasons for why it's okay for these victims to have been hurt. And I think a big reason why still it's not as widely Right. I mean, you're talking about even though this was a beautiful woman, right? So a beautiful white woman. Upper middle class. Upper middle class. So she had all of these things kind of like check, check, check in her favor. Um, I think that had this story, I think it was very clear given that really there was very little news coverage for the first two weeks um, that had this story not had this kind of sensationalized element to it that the media could take and run with, that it would have dissolved into obscurity. We wouldn't know her. Um, And I think that that is largely because not just her sexuality, but because of the quote unquote type of woman she was. Like she was an independent woman. She wasn't this like perfect kind of 1950s. She wasn't living with her parents still. Right, young woman. You know, she wasn't married. She wasn't this like housewife. She was an independent boss who drove who paid for her own little red fiat that she drove around and had books about feminism on her on her bookshelf yeah she wasn't the kind of woman who would have gotten this kind of attention 
if it weren't for this other element. And I think that, you know, it speaks to what you were just saying. It's just like, if you are not this kind of person, you won't get the same kind of attention. Yeah. You know, or the same kind of respect. respect. Because I yeah. just feel like you're doing such a disservice by not truly honoring the person who's mm-hmm. lost their lives, especially when you are creating such a huge hubbub surrounding this crime. I feel like if, if the crime is going to be famous, the woman should be learned about. We should know who this woman is that right. lost her life. You right. Know? And it should also be one of those things where, you know, her sexuality doesn't detract at all. Like the fact that they wanted to leave it out because they were like, you know, people might not have as much sympathy. It's right. Like, it, the facts of the case are the same. And this is a human being who went through something truly horrifying and terrifying. And if you can't have empathy for that person because of who they live with or who they sleep with or who they love is so just, that, I mean, that's the thing about our society that we really should have I taken know. away from this. And like, honestly, I don't, I don't mean to compare the two because I think they're very different, but I, I was thinking about George Floyd when you were talking about that, how so many people could see the same video and have such different reactions to it and have such a lack of humanity for the man that died and, and use excuses and things like yeah. that. It just, it, it reminds me of that. It's, it's, it's the just, lack of honoring the person. It's interesting to me because what we took out of this, right from this like bystander effect, can you believe these 38 neighbors didn't do anything? And Oh my God, humanity is doomed and like apathy and all of these things. Right. And it's like, Oh gosh, the point just went right over your head that like, mm. <laughs> what we should have taken away from that is that like, yeah, humanity is really fucked up and our ability to not have empathy and not reach out is really fucked up. And, th- and the fact that you wouldn't want to do that because of someone's sexuality or your empathy ends because you don't agree with the life that someone is leading is truly the most fucked up thing. It is. It truly is. Well, and I I was reading, too, that people have, you know, posited that possibly people in her building were aware of the true nature between her and Marianne and that maybe that was part of why they didn't want to help her. You know, there are all of these possibilities of what neighbors could be thinking, because I think that very well could have been part of it. If they weren't a fan of Kitty and her lifestyle, maybe that's another reason why they didn't want to get involved so, and I mean, I, I was thinking about all of this when I was writing, remembering that this is pre Stonewall by only a few years, five years, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's, it's before any movement had truly happened in the LGBTQ community. And so if I, I wonder if this had happened six years later, if it wouldn't have been slightly different, you know, she was oh, living in, so. in such a different time, mm-hmm. just right pre Stonewall era. Yeah. Because you know? she was very well known again in that bar scene in that, like, like yes. that kind of like community that was, gay bars. that was kind of coming up at that time that I really do think that the she same, probably would have been there. Yeah. The same way we saw like Sylvia Rivera, not let Martha P Johnson's, death go right I think that there probably would have been someone there to say "Uh uh-uh like we're not going to erase 
who she was. But um, they had no voice at this time. And it was very dangerous. It was incredible. I mean, I was doing reading. Um, I've been mentioning to you that I really wanted to talk about sodomy laws in the future. But I mean, there were sodomy laws still in effect until 1980. And there were even some still in effect until 2000. Yeah. Which is just so disheartening in the way that we've criminalized People Even calling it sodomy is it it evokes a certain kind of thing in exactly. your head, you know, exactly. Yeah. But oh, all of that being said, my goodness, um, <laughs> I, I know. And I'm I'm glad that we talked about this. I put this on the list a while ago because it was a pleasant uh part of the witness for me watching the documentary was learning about this person that I felt like I really resonated with because she does seem like she'd be someone that we would be friends with. Oh, definitely. You know what I mean? And yeah. it, 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 it makes you feel so connected to her when you learn more about the story rather than just it's only it's headline 28, 29. She's 28. Yeah. Like very young, very, very young and so independent, so smart, knew what she wanted. Poor Marianne. I can only imagine how lonely and awful she felt for the rest of her life. Truly. I mean, I can't imagine how you get over something well, I, like I that. I hope she was able to find peace. She was also quite young, you know, so I hope that she was able to reconstruct a life. And, I'm sure and she was able and, to, but it's like, it's one of those things where, especially when it's like trauma on top of trauma that she experienced. Yeah, you carry it with, with the you. police and the trial and the this. Like, I'm sure she's fine. You know what I mean? But like, I, I can only imagine, especially then without therapists easily accessible the amount of pain and loneliness you would feel in going through something like that when you don't have an open community that you can go to and that can support you and losing your partner in that way and going through the shock of that and then um being victimized by the people who are supposed to be protecting you you know law enforcement i mean thank goodness Winston came forward and said something because you can you imagine if they just continued thinking that Marianne was a suspect it would have been another completely different story you know what I mean yeah it's bizarre because it's like they had witnesses who were like hey it was a man we know it was a man yeah you know like wow oh geez well but if the police want what they want let's look at all the wrongfully convicted people in prison right now they'll get you in there you know All right. Well, I hope all of you enjoyed learning about Katie Genovese as much as Keegan and I did. If you have any other topics that you would like for us to discuss in the future, please email us at neighborhoodfeminists at gmail.com or direct message us and follow us on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. While you are on our Instagram, if you want to check out our merch, you can click the link in our bio or click the link in our bio wherever you're listening in the show notes. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can chat with the fellow listeners on the group page and rate and review us on the business page, which we very much appreciate. We love it even more when you leave us a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. It truly is so helpful for us and it makes our day. All right, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. In a world saturated with glossy facades comes a podcast that's breaking barriers. This is Reppin. It's where we do a deep dive into subjects like belonging to mental health, to courage and more.
On Reppin, you'll meet the faces you think you know and discover their untold stories. It's real, it's intimate, and it gives you insight into the real person behind the images. In a world of pretense, Reppin strips it all down. No filters, no facades. Learn and be empowered and find inspiration through thought-provoking stories that resonate with your journey. Every episode is an exploration into the truths and values that make us who we are. Representation, it's not just about race or gender. It's about you. Reppin ensures that every voice is heard. Every story is valued. So be seen, be heard, and be represented. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts.